Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Queston Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. In these, the days following the midterm elections, we've assembled the crew to discuss the trends and notable stories that emerged as the votes were tallied. There were a number of significant firsts, the first Muslim women elected to Congress, two of them, in fact, the first Native American women elected to Congress, again, two of them. Uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut both elected their first black women to Congress. Uh, There were more openly LGBT people elected Tuesday than in any prior election. And in next year's session of Congress, as a result of this election, there will be at least 100 women in the House for the first time in our history. Uh, And here in New York City, where I voted, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, at 29 years old, I actually didn't know that until I read the headlines that she's 29, I knew she was young, but that is remarkable, uh, became the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, uh, which is exciting for us because we like young people. We came from a perspective of, you know, politically engaged young people, even though some of us are not as young or politically engaged as we used to be. (laughs) But congratulations to all of them. Uh, Needless to say, there's a lot to celebrate there. Uh, But Also notably, there's not necessarily a clear narrative that's emerged uh, from this election. Democrats took the House, Republicans retained control of the Senate, uh, but, you know, we didn't experience the mythical blue wave. And in some ways, it feels like people doubled down on their views and we might be as split as we've ever been. And that might be the story of this election. Uh, I don't mean to be a downer, but it's just a point. Uh, Feel free to debate me on that, anyone. So while everyone else is unpacking this election, counting the numbers, staring into the crystal ball, we wanted to gather some margin call heavy hitters to discuss this election from a personal perspective. Maybe less analysis and more just, you know, sharing stories from our neighborhoods and our homes uh, and insights from our respective communities. So with that said, uh, I can exhale because that was a long intro, but it was worth it. It was good. Uh, with us tonight, uh, Amelia, welcome back to the show. Uh, Mishgon is here, a very special return. We're always happy to have Mishgon. Uh, and Tom Terpel is also back. Two weeks in a row, I want to say, or at least two weeks in the same month. Big deal. Big deal. Yeah, Tom. it's getting addicting. Yeah, it, it's, it is habit forming. So I encourage you. We're, we're the jewel of podcasts. So just uh, keep loading up those pods. Uh, and of course, as always, uh, keeping us on task and making us sound good, our producer, Iming Piancai. Like I said, uh, Mishgarn, we were talking before the show, I wanted to come to you first just because you raised uh, so many good points. You know, I'm kind of unfolding this narrative that there is no clear narrative. There are a lot of remarkable firsts and there's a lot to unpack and talk about here. Uh, I just feel like you made a lot of really solid points. So I wanted to kind of circle around to that with you and maybe have you give us a little bit of an overview while we get started. Awesome. Well, I'll do my best. Um, Some of the things that I think are noteworthy from this election um, that I was reflecting on was the fact that just a few weeks before uh, the midterms took place in the U.S., Afghanistan also had an election where literally there were polling centers that were being bombed as people were going in and trying to vote. And the, the threats were very high. Uh, it was noteworthy for the Afghan community in the U.S. because two Afghan-American women for the first time got elected into politics. 
One of them was a state representative in New Hampshire. Her name was Safia Waziri. And the other one was a council member uh, and a good friend of mine um, in Hayward, uh, Aisha Wahab. Uh, both of these women have very unique stories. Uh, and I want to start out with kind of the stories of these women because I, I think they're reflective of, even though in a very difficult situation and in, in, in a moment where our country is experiencing a lot of maybe hate rhetoric and prejudice, that we can see, you know, kind of inklings of light coming through. Safia Waziri had been under the Taliban rule for many, many years, and she was able to escape and come to the United States and here being elected into state represent uh, as, as a state representative, you know, and making a difference in the communities that she serves. Aisha Wahab was an orphan uh, when she was younger. So both of these women have very poignant stories of how they were kind of, you know, maybe the underdogs and they are now achieving something that could only be a dream uh, to them in, in the United States, especially given the climate. How did uh, that, let me ask really quickly, uh, how did that resonate in your own family, in your own community, in the Afghan American community, Hayward? Uh, was this a kind of a shared victory? Were people really excited as this news was coming in? What, what did that feel like? Uh, the Afghan community was very excited. I mean, there is a group of Afghan immigrant women who went to Aisha Wahab's office that evening and they celebrated with her. All of these women had experienced some kind of trauma and I've worked with most of these women. I mean, they've described seeing things that no human should absolutely be exposed to in their lifetimes and to see an Afghan woman here in the U.S. in politics making political decisions that affect their immediate communities is a pretty big deal to them. It's very victorious for us because of the simple fact that the following day, um, Russ, you know, the press conference from the president of the United States had a very different tone, right? Uh, we experienced two individuals who had accents that asked him questions that he responded to in a manner that no president should respond to anyone or any human should respond to anyone. It was very condescending. Uh, he was kind of asking them, you know, multiple times what they were saying and saying out loud that he did not understand them, which was disconcerting. So if any time we can see um, in our world how polarized we are is now, but if any time we can see that there are pebbles of victory that we can hang on to and hope especially hope that comes from women who have traveled many, many, many miles to be where they are and overcome a great deal of adversity. It's now. So that should tell the rest of our country that in moments of adversity, there is also a silver lining and that we can achieve great things. Right. Uh, well said. I, I would also say it's remarkable. I mean, those women's stories are remarkable for so many different reasons, but you know, particularly now as we're having conversations about immigrants, we're having conversations about refugees, people are trying to make distinctions about which part of the world we should allow people to come from, and people of which faiths uh, we should allow people to come from. Uh, I just think it's a, it's a very poignant victory for these two women as Afghans, as Afghan Americans, as immigrants, and as refugees. So congratulations to both of them. Thank you uh, for sharing that. I think it's a really good introduction. 
Tom, I want to come to you because you have a very different story from election day, but one worth sharing. And I think one that could lead to, you know, a conversation about civic engagement one way or another. Uh, tell me what happened. You, you went to vote yesterday. Your friends contacted you. How, how did this start? Yeah, Russell, I don't even know. I um, was at work. And a couple of my this friends. This was on election day. You're talking yeah, about on yeah. Tuesday? Let, okay. let, let, let me back up the story a bit. Okay. So Please, yeah. I moved back to Pleasanton two years ago. And this is Pleasanton is a town I grew up in. And what really surprised me was that most of my friends from Pleasanton were still here. It's like nobody left, which is cool. It's like, because I kind of needed it at the time. Like, Oh, wow. It's like I came home again and everything's still the same. So I start getting texts from people that were already voting during lunchtime. Hey, man, I voted for you for mayor. I'm like, what? <laughs> the the mayor is running unopposed, so I'm writing you in. And then I'm like, <laughs> okay. And then suddenly it was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to make a campaign out of this. So I just put something on Facebook like, hey, uh, my roommate just wrote me in for mayor. I think everyone else should do the same. They're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And suddenly it turned into the six-hour campaign of me running for mayor. It was actually really fun. It was just kind of like getting on the phone and calling people saying, hey, did you vote yet? All right, go vote for me. Just write me in. (laughs) And the guy was running unopposed, which really ticks me off because – the thing is, it costs $25 to get your name on the ballot for to be mayor of Pleasanton. Like, had I known, and then I had, and the deadline was August 10th. Had anyone told me I should do this back in July, I would have totally thrown in 25 bucks to put my name on a ballot just to see my name on the ballot. And Well, here's, it, here's a more interesting question. And I do, you know, this is. These are the places, this is how, where civic engagement starts, right? Like, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is your community. This is your hometown. This is the place you've been from forever. When I think of you, I think of Pleasanton, uh, because so much of your early writing when we first met was about this place and about the nature of the suburbs and about the nature of sprawl and about your community. So, you know, let's say it was $25, and, and it was something that you were able to plan for. Do you have ideas for how the community of Pleasanton could be improved in a way that the mayor is not thinking? Or do you have specific objections to the mayor himself? Or do you just solely object to the idea that he's running unopposed and you don't think that's not very democratic for anybody to run unopposed? That's a good question. So I think one of the things that was a major drawback to this local election in particular was how many people were so apathetic And when they got to the polls to see this, that drew outrage. So that is something that was very interesting to me. On a personal level, it was fun to just kind of put this on the last minute. But at the same time, afterwards, I really began thinking about things that are going on within the Bay Area itself and what's going on with local communities in terms of like, you know, how infrastructure is being built how um, natural resources, you know, like unincorporated land is being built up around. And I'm a wholehearted environmentalist, and that is something that does concern me. And I'm like, it just began to inspire, like, well, what would I do if I were put into office? What would I I do if I were to put myself into a civic duty like that, like as a mayor? And it did, it definitely inspired some ideas of like, you know what, maybe this is something I should do. 
And yeah. I mean, if it's going to be, and I'm definitely thinking about when 2020 comes around that when, cause uh Pleasanton mayors, they run on um, two year term limit, two year terms. So 2020 will be the next mayoral race. Let's go start raising money now. Oh, it's up on. stickers. We'll have you on the podcast every week. Oh no. And I, and I do want to have it be, <laughs> and I do want to have my campaign be tongue in cheek because I think that's going to draw more eyebrows. I mean, I want my slogan to be Tom Trapel for mayor because he needs a shorter commute and people that will like, you know what? People may get pissed off. People may be offended by that, but I mean, I think it's something that will put the brakes on people, you know, and I may yeah. have something to say. I mean, let's, let's really think about what the mayor of Pleasanton does. Okay. He goes on community public access television for 30 minutes a week to talk about what the city council's doing. I could do that. I could be your man <laughs> on public access. You want me to open it. up Wayne's world? It'd I'm be like God. Wayne's world. Exactly. I was going to say <laughs> Wayne's world. Like you just need a Garth or, or maybe, yeah, you're, you're the Wayne. You just need yeah. a Garth. But I mean, the other thing too, was that it really like had me excited this for this election on a different level. Like I was curious to see how everything did, you know, I mean, yeah. I was very considerate about like how things were going with like the propositions and, and you know, my state assembly and my congressional candidates, like how they were, how they were going to go. I, I mean, I had a, I had a similar experience when I went uh, in to vote because there were so many people running unopposed uh, on my ballot in my, in my district in New York. Uh, almost, you know, I voted for, you know, there's a section, it's like, all right, you know, vote for, this is judges, right? Choose three judges. There's only three names there. They're all Democrats, you know, like they, there was, I really didn't have to think about that. Attorney general running unopposed. I mean, most of them were people that I would have voted for anyway, you know, but that's just kind of good luck. What about people in my community who don't feel that way? You know, uh, I was actually really surprised this time around because uh, I did my, you know, I did my homework. I always do my homework especially on local stuff, because I think a lot of that gets overlooked. Uh, and there were some specific measures about, you know, term limits for community board members and, you know, starting some new, a new initiative for civic engagement. So yeah, I did my research. But when I finally got in there, I was like, I didn't really have to do my research because there's not a choice on this ballot. And as much as people complain about a two-party system where it's like, oh, it's not really a choice at all if you're only choosing between two people. It's really not a choice if you're only choosing between one person, you know, and, and I feel very lucky that for the most part, the people who are on there, at least I knew of them and I felt comfortable voting for them or, you know, it, it, I didn't have any personal objection. I was like, OK, fine. This judge is a Democrat. It's like I, I don't have like I, I assume that this person is someone that I can vote for. Uh, but that's a really good point. I'm sure that's a part of the reason that a lot of people get involved in politics. You know, you show up and you realize like the, there is no choice. Uh, so what what was the final tally? How many how many votes did you get, Tom? How close were you? I got five percent. <laughs> nice. Wow. That's remarkable. That's really. Remarkable. <laughs> I was stoked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should be. Really impressive. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, that, that that got hyped up on that one. Yeah, Tom, you should. This reminds me of like Dennis Hoff from Nevada. The, the guy. Oh, don't say dead. that, please. <laughs> Why? Tell us about Dennis Hoff. Tell us, Mishka, who's Dennis Hoff? 
So the guy is literally dead, right? He owns a brothel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell, yeah, yeah. In Nevada, and he yes. got voted oh, yeah. in for assembly member. So this kind of brought up the question to me, is how many people really do do their homework versus just understanding or, like, relying on muscle memory of who they know and who yeah. they've seen the most and yeah. what they've seen the most? Well, a lot of times it's name recognition, right? Just like how many signs have you seen with that name on it before? Like when I was a kid, there was a guy named Hennessy who was always the sheriff of San Francisco. And because his name was the same name as like this liquor, everybody like wanted to steal the sign. So they had like Hennessy for sheriff. Everybody had him hanging up in their room. I don't know anything about Hennessy or what he did as sheriff. But when I was old enough to vote, when I went in there, I was like, Hennessy for sheriff, baby, let's go. You know, I mean, <laughs> sure, I was 18, 19 years old. I didn't necessarily have like a very sophisticated political perspective. And it was a much more ironic, disaffected time, I think, in the late 90s than we're in now. But yeah, I, I think that's true for a lot of people. And even more common, I think, is voting party line. You know, it, it, in a lot of ways, that's what I did. You know, I just went in there and I was like, fine, I don't love the two-party system, but I am a registered Democrat, so I'm going to vote for Democrats, you know, but a lot of people do that. There were plenty of people on there that I voted for I'd never heard of before, you know, except, you know, when I finally got my mailer and read through and, and did research online about who they were. Um, it's a flawed system, but I think, you know, there's there's another thing to be said, and and this is something that Mishkan mentioned, you know, you talked, you, you said that there was an election in, in Afghanistan just recently, is that right? Uh, and there was some right. Viol- right, and there was some violence. Um, I know that there are a lot of uh, improvements that need to be na- made, and I think that's part of what we exposed, and that's a big part of the storyline this time around about whose votes were counted and what are we doing to exclude voters uh, and limit people's access to the system. But you know, it is it is safe, you know, for people to show up to a polling place, and I uh, am not you know, being naive or overly, overly sentimental, as many uh, objections I might have about what was actually on my ballot. Um, you know, it's a very positive experience. It was a very positive experience for me going to my polling place, seeing people from my community, uh, going to, you know, the middle school down the block from me. And people, you know, you have to wait in line, right? And usually people waiting in line are rude to each other. You know, like when I go to the grocery store on the corner, like people yell at each other for not loading their groceries up quick enough or like, take, you know, someone's like counting out their change. And inevitably the person, it's New York, you know, so the person behind him is like, oh my God, come on, let's go. But this polling place was totally disorganized, of course, because that's part of it. It's a part of democracy is that it's confusing. Uh, and you had to wait in seven different lines. Um, but everybody was happy to be there. Uh, and I think that's worth celebrating too. Not to be naive you know, or get stars in my eyes. So congrats, Tom. Uh, if you're going to make a big push for it in 2020, let us know. We'll give you as much coverage as we can. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think you'll have any shortage of issues, you know, particularly in the Bay Area. When you talk about real estate uh, and proximity to Silicon Valley, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right there. The people, the people need a voice. I believe in Tom. There you go. That's my endorsement. Well, well thank you. I mean... <laughs> We'll, we'll um, see how it goes. I just yeah. wish I, I do. I thought of this like two or three months ago, just so I can get my name on the ballot, because I think it it would have uh, made a more significant difference and brought some I brought some topics to attention that you know I I'm conscious about and that I really feel need to be voiced. 
I mean, these issues aren't going anywhere. You know, you have two years. You can go to all kinds of community meetings, go door to door, talk to your friends. You can build a real platform. That's a, a, a manageable enough community, the place where you're from. You know enough people. You know enough of the stakeholders. I'd be very interested to see what came out of a uh, Tom Terpel for Mayor platform over the next couple of years. So keep us posted is what I'm saying. Will do. Uh, Amelia, at the top of the show, before we even started recording, uh, you were reading off uh, some updates for us. I think you mentioned Maxine Waters. You want to give us uh, a couple updates or things to, to keep in mind now yes. that the Democrats have taken back the House? Yes. So, yeah, Maxine Waters is now the chairperson for the uh, Finance Committee. So she can request all those tax returns. And um, that to you, you're like, that's that's it. That's what's up with this whole yeah, election yeah, was yeah. about getting the president's tax returns. No, not really. But I think, you know, now we can have subpoenas. But I am. Um, so actually, my vote was, if I'm saying it correctly, but my, vo- my vote was purged. Is that how you say it? Like it got taken out yeah, of the, I think, the thing? Yeah, I, I think you I think you conjugated that correctly. Right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, my vote. sounds so I, good to me. I registered as a, in Ohio because that's okay. where I voted. So I requested my absentee ballot a minute ago, and I just I never they never sent it to me. So I called the protection hotline, like the voter protection hotline, um, and they were like, "There's not much we can do about it, you know." But this, you know, this you're not the only person this is happening to. Um, so I like it happened to one of my friends, like for Florida, one of my friends voted absentee ballot and they said his signature didn't match. So they didn't count his vote. So were you able to vote? No. OK. Yeah. And you you were denied an absentee ballot because what is this one of those things where like, oh, we thought you were dead. So we just took you off the rolls. No, no. So I requested it. And then I rec- they were like, well, how did you request it? And I was like, well, I called the Ohio State House. Yeah. And then they, I mean, they can say like mailing issues, you know, yeah. like they can pretty much say anything. Um, so I, I never received my absentee ballot for Ohio. And, I, and knew, you... I knew it was going to happen because I asked them, I was like, you know, when is it going to arrive? And they're like, well, no, we don't know exactly. <laughs> I was like, okay, is there someone else I can talk to? But I kind of knew. And actually my friend told me, he was like, you should have registered as a Republican. You should register as a Republican in Ohio. So that way, when the presidential, because I actually want to vote, I want my vote to count in Ohio. Mm -hmm. I feel like it'll matter more. And I've been, you know, I've been registered there. So they were like, during the presidential election, you should register as a Republican and then vote, you know, vote Democrat. So you're saying you mean for presidential elections, because Ohio is a swing state Mm -hmm. uh, and New York is not where you live now in New York. So you're saying like, yeah. New York's a blue state. No matter who the Democratic candidate is, New York's going to go for them. But if you're registered in Ohio, which is a swing state, your vote will count for more. Well, that raises a bigger question, I think, which is similar to what Tom's objection was and my objection was, which is in a presidential election, uh, if you're in a red state or a blue state, it, it really can be very disheartening because you know, politicians are really only like presidential candidates are really only talking to a handful of states, right? right? They're, they're only talking to Florida, 
they're talking to Ohio, I guess now, you know, Wisconsin and some of those places, uh, North Carolina, I guess Virginia is now in play, but it's just a handful. And the only states I've ever lived in were Democratic states, California and New York. And we don't get much action come election year. And that, I mean, obviously there are a lot of issues we can raise about the Electoral College and how it's structured. But that, more than anything, I think is really deeply problematic for the same reason that Tom is talking about. You know, you can be a politician and take a certain place for granted, California or New York, for instance. But that go ahead, go ahead. I'm curious how many people actually are like, for example, Democrat and register as Republicans just so that they can vote in the primaries. Does that happen? I remember that was a big deal. And, you know, I'm going to date myself again. That's kind of just what happens on this show. But the first presidential election I ever covered as a journalist was 2000. George W. Bush uh, and Al Gore. And uh, during the, the primaries, you know, John McCain was in that one. It was basically down to John McCain and George W. Bush. And a lot of people, non Republicans, progressive people, were like, George W. Bush is a nightmare. Like, this guy's going to be terrible. But John McCain, the perception at the time, and I think he was able to maintain this, even though he, he ran against Barack Obama in 2008 and wasn't very popular, was considered, you know, a pretty morally and ethically sound person uh, with decent values. And there were a number of people in California at the time who were progressive people and Democrats who did register as Republican so that they could vote in the, the presidential primaries for John McCain instead of George W. Bush. It didn't work. George W. Bush got elected, 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, and then now everybody thinks George Bush is the best because our current president is so terrible that by comparison, uh, people are lauding. I read somewhere today that George Bush actually got an award today. Did anybody see that? He got what? For what? His art? I, oh, no. I, I really wish. Oh my God. Uh, I think the funniest thing about the 2016 election was how the Bush family came out and said, please vote for Clinton. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, Trump, Trump bashed his brother in the primaries. I'm sure they were very happy about that. You know? But still to have someone who's yeah. like, you know, like the, the Republican brand come out and say, Wait. vote Democrat. That's a bold statement. Wait. Yeah. Bono awarded George W. Bush a leadership medal? No, no, no. The name of the leadership medal is the George W. Bush Leadership Medal and Bono awarded it. I think the one I think the one I'm thinking of is this distinguished leadership award. For Uh, what? uh, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well we tend to forget what did he do? The rhetoric that he used. And Russell, you and I probably remember this very closely because of the post 9-11 stuff and what we kind of encountered as reporters during that period of time. Uh, And, you know, especially about the ethnic communities that were involved. But Mm -hmm. we tend to forget that because his rhetoric is so much more toned down than our current president's rhetoric. And so we look back and we're like, whoa, he was really cool. He was great. And now he's like, an artist, so he's expressing his true self. So we're <laughs> perceiving him as totally a different person than what we saw. Of course, I president. couldn't think of a more profound illustration of how askew things are right now that people are like, 
hey man, George W. Bush wasn't that bad, <laughs> you know? I mean, right. his brand, you know, at the time it was considered a lot more dangerous, right? Because his whole brand was compassionate conservatism, right? His idea was like, hey, just because you're conservative doesn't mean you have to be like racist or sexist. And and he went out of his way to reach out to these communities, including, you know, a lot of people say he was a lot friendlier in terms like his immigration policy was a lot friendlier even than Barack Obama's. He did a lot of outreach to the Latino community. Uh, and even again, this is a, a slippery slope, but even in the days, weeks, and months after 9-11, uh, so many, so many questionable policies put in place. In terms of messaging, he was always very careful to say that, like, this is not about Islam, and there's nothing wrong with the Muslim people, there's nothing wrong with Arab people, uh, and even though his policies didn't necessarily reflect that, and I don't know if that's better, right? Like, is it better to say one thing publicly and then do something else you have your policies undermine that is it i think so is it better Believe to it or not yeah of the amount of it's, hate it's, that is it's being kind projected. of yeah 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 i mean like, russell i was at an airport today and literally like i could tell the difference in how people were reacting uh you know to people of different skin colors like it was really interesting to observe yeah. that you know post-election just the tension that is in the air still. Yeah. I think I, I, I talk about this a lot because I think, um, and sometimes I say this in a dismissive way or like in a jokey way, even though this is really serious stuff, obviously. But I felt like if you're comparing these two administrations, you know, the, the Bush administration was like comparatively very organized, right? They had this like project for the new American century. They had the CIA locked up. They had Cheney in there, Rumsfeld, a lot of like very like smart, evil people, like ready to implement a plan together. Right. And that's not what's happening now. What's happening is is chaos. So in terms of policy, there's a lot less happening uh, and, it, and it, it feels a lot less impactful, I think, sometimes or a lot less nefarious, maybe um, than the Bush administration. But your point is crucial, which is maybe it's more corrosive, more harmful um, to open the floodgates on such hateful language and that which changes the discourse and doesn't really matter if you're implementing the project for a new American century, if people feel comfortable using, you know, hateful, racist, sexist epithets uh, towards each other. Uh, I, I guess the takeaway is like, they're both terrible for different reasons. <laughs> and let's stop saying George W. Bush wasn't that bad. Well, Amelia, I cut you off to go on a whole rant about George W. Bush. So please tell us about Maxine Waters and... Um, uh, what you want our new new House of Representatives to do. Yeah, they got to do something. Because when I saw Nancy Pelosi's speech, I was like, Nancy? Why does everybody hate Nancy? Oh, Nancy. Oh, Nancy. Everybody was so hyped on Nancy Pelosi in 2006. You know, that was, that was the first flip of the House and Senate I ever saw. I mean, I guess it happened in the Clinton years too, but I remember in 2006, the House and the Senate both flipped for the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi was the first female Speaker of the House, the most powerful woman in the history, right? And it was like, yo, this is a real referendum on George Bush, man. Like, it's over. And in a lot of ways, it really was because he only had two years left. He was a lame duck president, uh, never got anything else done. People started to finally realize that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were a mess. So it was like, people were like, we love Nancy Pelosi. Oh, you know, first female Speaker of the House. 
And now people, mostly Democrats and progressives, are like, oh, God, when are we going to get rid of Nancy Pelosi? I mean, I understand ostensibly why people feel that way, but why do you feel that way, Amelia? I think if the Democrats keep keep trying to do what they did in 2006, they won't win. Which is what? What were they what were they trying to do in 2006? I mean, I think like being, you know, very white, wealthy liberals, which Democrats are and you know, many of them are actually pretty conservative. So I think I think they really need a a new face for this new time that we're in, which we're seeing automatically. I mean, when you look at like the hundred women and many firsts are happening, Mm -hmm. especially women of color. Like, I think that like, and and plus since House, you know, House of Representatives are closer to the people definitely than those who are in the Senate. I think it's more of a reflection of what the people are really desiring at this time. So I think they're, I think there definitely needs to be a new face to this movement. And I think it's being created from the ground level for sure. And hopefully it'll, it'll go up, but um, I'm really looking forward to 2020 to see, to see who the democratic party will select, because I I really hope they don't make the same mistake as last time. Um, Which, which was what, what was the mistake last time in your estimation? I mean, they were super sneaky and like, you know, did what they needed to do to continue corporate greed and big you mean, money. You mean the Republicans? Or the Democrats? No, like the Democrats as well. I mean, you know, like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, you know, everything that went down, I think there was just like, I think there was a divide within the party itself. And um, that, that can't happen again. What do you want to see in 2020, Amelia? I want to see Kamala Harris. <laughs> I'm going to make a bold prediction right now. I think Biden's going to run. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I think the whole reason why they just, he went on the wayside was because there was so much parody going on in politics two years ago that if it were 12 years of the Obama administration, there would be more backlash in 2020 if things did not go well. Now that we've seen four years of Trump or that we're going to see four years of Trump, he could come back as like the hero and the savior. Yeah. And that's what you're going to see. Yeah. But that doesn't really address Amelia's concerns. And I think concerns of a lot of progressive people and Democrats, uh, you know, Joe Biden, say what you want about Joe Biden, cool dude, great vice president. Uh, but you know, he's an old white guy. And, uh, I think what a lot of people are looking for in the Democratic Party is a move away from that. Generationally, probably primarily, youth might be the most important thing there. But the leadership that we're seeing, the emerging leadership that we're seeing is female and it's young uh, and it's young women of color. And I think, Amelia, I'm not you know, trying to put words in your mouth. That's partly what you're saying is the issue with Nancy Pelosi and, and the Democratic Party in general is that it's a lot of old white people. Yes. Right? Uh, but do you although, think the general public is ready for that, guys? Like, in reality, are they really ready for a young woman who is progressive? Um, like, let's think of a southern state, Missouri, right? Would that flip a red state? Or would it just be to the detriment of the party? 
I don't know because I mean it really has to do with the candidate, right? Like it's not, in my opinion, it has to do with the candidate. I mean, people used to have these conversations all the time, right? Like we we forget now because it's been ten years and many horrible things have happened since then. But you know, uh, it was unfathomable that we would have a black president as late as two thousand seven, right? The the conversations that people were having was like, yeah, like. And and this is the kind of stuff that Hillary's camp was saying. It's like, yeah, he's a great candidate, but, you know, America's not ready for that or that's too much or it's too divisive. Um, but he had the right message. You know, he had a message, a unifying message, which I think is really important. It was not like when when he first came on the scene in 2004, that's what his speech. Nobody ever heard of him before, but he spoke at the Democratic National Convention in Boston uh, when John Kerry was nominated. And he was saying, he's like, there's no, his whole thing, it's a cliche now, but his whole thing was there is no red state America. There is no blue state America. There's just America. And it's like, it's okay that we disagree about things. And it's okay that you disagree with me, but there are a lot of things that we can work on together. That's, you know, political rhetoric. But as we know, words are important. Rhetoric is important. And he was a uniter, you know, and there were plenty of detractors and there was a lot of ugliness in response to it, but he won. And he won because he was a uniter. And also, you know, the in a lot of ways, the numbers were in his favor. People were exhausted after the Bush administration. People were tired of war. You know, Iraq was the number one issue. And, and Obama was able to say that he voted against the Iraq war. Um, and he was also able to appeal and, like, galvanize groups who famously, you know, are not politically engaged, right? People who don't always come out in big numbers, most notably young people. Right. So I, I would say it's a mistake to think like, oh, is Missouri going to vote for whatever, a, a black woman for president? You know, because I, I really I, I think it has it has to do with the person and it has to do with the message. You know, and I think the right person could do that, in my opinion, in my opinion. I like Kamala. We love Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. I mean, you know, Latifah, yeah, she's pretty amazing. If, if Latifah comes on the show tonight. Kamala Harris married her and Kevin. She officiated that ceremony. The second wedding. <laughs> the, the second, second wedding. wedding. Number two. What? Yeah. Yeah. It was, we pretty, have a it was, it was pretty epic. It was pretty epic. Kamala Harris used she used to come to our Christmas party. Shut up. Are you serious? Pacific News Service. Yeah. What year was that? Yeah. What year was that? I'm not even trying to hang out. Have I just totally blocked this out because I feel like I would have been totally was it starstruck like, even back then. She she had just been she had just been elected district attorney in San Francisco when she came to our Christmas party. So that it was two thousand four when she came. Wait, wait, she's so badass. What, I, I, I have no memory amazing. of this. I, I need to. It was it was the year that we had the Christmas party in the office, which was only one year because we usually went to Stern Grove, but one year we went to Willie Brown came to the. Christmas party, you know. Yeah, it was like 2005, right? Yeah, 2004, 2005. Sandy, you know, she was she's savvy. She's politically connected. Well, obviously. San, Francisco, San Francisco's a small town, you know what I mean? So uh, she she had this dynamic idea for ethnic media and a, a way to reach huge numbers of people. And if there's one thing that politicians are interested in, <laughs> it's reaching huge numbers of people. Not to be cynical, but I think that had something to do with it. Anyway, she's an old friend of New American Media and Pacific News Service, and I would vote for her in a second. Oh, yeah. Speaking of old friends and people who inspire, um, so we currently have a woman on the Supreme Court, right? Uh, Ruth Ginsburg. And oh, yeah. 
Someone wrap her in bubble wrap. She has, she like literally huge following. And it's, I don't know if you guys have looked at the news today, but people are so terrified of anything happening to her that they're literally like offering her their kidneys and anything else she might need. <laughs> Total tangent. Sorry, but I had to put it out there. I don't think it's a tangent at all. I think it's really important. Her age cause... could like have a strong following of young women. And and she deserves it, obviously. But it, it, speaking of people actually moving the younger generation, she's one of those people. It's true. Yeah, she's hugely iconic. Uh, and, I mean, you know, people wear pins on their lapel. Like, people have notorious RBG t-shirts. She's, a, you know, she's an icon. Uh, and rightly so. She's been around for a long time. She's done a lot yeah. of really good work. Someone posted... And- Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Someone posted what? No, someone posted about uh, that happened, like her falling on Instagram and worried that someone pushed her. They're like, is it bad that my first thought was did someone push her? Sorry, that was really dark. <laughs> I'm so it's sorry. dark. It's sometimes, dark. Sometimes, yeah, but... sometimes we go there on this show. Sorry. Sometimes I'm op- I embrace the darkness. <laughs> Bring it. I mean, it is a real question, and this is not just true for uh Ginsburg but for any other justice on the court you know uh Trump's only been in office two years he's already gotten two Supreme Court justices in there uh and it's not like we didn't talk a lot about Kavanaugh when this was going on but those appointments are for life right we're we're having a long conversation about like oh election day you know people who are going to have to run for election in a few years re-election in a few years anyway but a lot of people i think this is a pretty common conception the most important thing a president does is is put a uh, supreme court justice on the court right i mean mm-hmm. when you talk about a legacy and everything else you know all these executive orders that trump's passed out the executive orders that obama uh, handed down Everything gets overturned when somebody else comes into office, you know, unless you really have like a, you know, piece of legislation that lasts, you know, something like the Affordable Care Act, which even is vulnerable in some ways. Uh, But Supreme Court, appointing a Supreme Court justice, man, that's, you know, Roberts, that guy, George W. Bush put him in. He's probably going to be there. He was like 40, I think, when he went. He's probably going to be in the Supreme Court for 40 years, you know. Terrifying. Yeah. Why did it, why is it life? There should be a term limits for Supreme Court justices. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there are arguments to be made on both sides. I'm, I'm definitely not coming out and saying it's a system that needs to change. I, I don't I don't have a strong position. I'm just interested in uh, this convergence of factors where you know one judge died, another one retired, uh, and now. I mean, not to say, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Ginsburg's fine. I know she's injured, but she doesn't have any more serious health ailments that I know of. It's just um, troubling food for thought, which I guess we could call it. That could be the title of this episode now. <laughs> troubling. Food. We started at such an optimistic place. Well, it's terrifying food for thought. Think about all of the legislation that could be overturned as a result of having even Kavanaugh Ugh. in office. In some ways, that's more important than a presidential election, I feel. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Or at least it it is the most important part of a presidential election because whoever you put in there is going to get to choose at least one, if not uh, two Supreme Court justices. Um, 
But I, yeah, I, I was particularly, I was reminded of the importance, not that I forget that the court is important, but, you know, when Trump first came into office and tried to pass, tried to restrict who could come into the country, right? And it was like the first days of his presidency were really just dark, and chaotic, and uh, it felt like all the worst fears around his candidacy were coming true, right? It's like, oh my God, like people are stranded at airports. It's like barring Muslims from entering the country. Like it was really dark. I don't have to remind you all. Uh, but what ended up happening uh, is that eventually uh, those individual cases came before judges who said, this is crazy. This is unconstitutional, you know, and that executive order has been completely undermined by judicial action. Right. Which is a really important reminder of why the courts are important. Right. And, and that's I mean, whatever. We're all getting like our own civics lessons in the past couple of years to figure out like who could stop them. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like we have a system in this country to prevent a despot from being elected and having too much power. Not that it's a perfect system, but, you know, sometimes we're reminded that the balance is helpful. And now, particularly with the Democrats taking control of the House. At long last, although I think it's worth the wait, uh, we finally get a chance to welcome our special guest tonight, Latifa Simon. Hi, everybody. <laughs> What's up, Latifa? Welcome. So, I mean, I, I thought of you right away when we were putting this show together. Basically, what I said at the top was, you know, yeah, okay, midterm elections, plenty of storylines, but we wanted to focus on personal stories, people we know, our communities, like the work that people are doing on a local level. So obviously I thought of you um, and, you know, this isn't you don't necessarily have to reflect on the meaning of these elections, but I am interested in you as a political person, as a person who's now engaged in the world uh, in a meaningful political way and what kind of work you're doing for your respective community in the Bay Area. I'm personally curious uh, and I think, you know, our listeners would appreciate to hear about what, what you've been up to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I, I legit had to take yesterday off because um, I was so impacted by what was not only happening locally, but nationally. Clearly, I love Andrew personally. He's a wonderful brother um, who's really helped to connect me with a lot of other Black young electeds around the country. Um, I deeply respect him and I had no idea I feel like in a very deep way what both Stacy, Andrew and the hundreds of other young people that I've met all over the country um, the racism that is palpable in different parts of the country we see uh, but not at the levels that they do I think the campaigning that I you know caught breath of the racist campaigning the radio ads that you know my comrades were dealing with against them was just it was shocking. And just to see the way in which folks try to steal elections, they would rather blow up, you know, blow, you know, sort of blow up a county than let black people lead. But that's been deep for me. Um, you know, you all know, some of you know that you know, two years ago I ran for election partly out of a desperation, um, you know, being alone after, you know, my beloved, our beloved Kevin passed away and wanting to sort of figure out how to live this legacy that he had to want to make things better, having these two children. I remember the day that um, Oscar was murdered, Oscar Grant was murdered the next day, Kevin said I would never ride Bart again. You know, I ran for Bart and I won and it was 19 cities that I had to campaign in. And 
you know, in the last two years, we have seen a perfect storm uh, by the respective cities. They live and they die in our tunnels. And so I thought I was going to come into this position and get free BART for young people, expand disability, uh, discount, you know, how to make a tramp human right, right? Um, and instead, what I had to learn pretty quickly was land use, transit-oriented development, safety, um, in, in a new frame that I haven't thought about it before, labor negotiations with the POA, um, my learning curve in what I've had to lead, Sanctuary BART, which is a policy that I'm so happy that I placed and I championed and we became the first sanctuary BART or transportation system in the country where our cops are not going to commandeer, their labor is not going to be commandeered. Doing all of that while holding down a nine to five, women mostly, women of color, when they take on these local positions, they still have to work, right? Like this, these are not full-time jobs. You get a small stipend. So I'm learning, I'm humbled, but I also now have a different understanding of what it means when regular people come into politics, like what you have to do to run and win when you have no personal money um, and how you have to sort of run a race, how you need, to, like what it takes to have signs in everybody's windows and a staff person um, who's going to run your race when you have no personal money. And um, it's helped me understand and align myself with other folks, both locally and nationally, who are like me, who are just want to do the best, the, the best good. So now I'll stop there. But um, it's been a rough, it's been a crazy two years <laughs> um, being elected. And I have two more years and I love it. And it's also very challenging. So it's a four-year term that you're elected to. Are you then able to seek re-election? Are you thinking about what's next? Or where, where are you with that? Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I'm going to seek re-election. I have five things that I said I wanted to do, and I'm going to get those done before my four years. And um, we'll see. I mean, for me, you know, the when you, again, why you don't see a ton of single mothers all over the country running for office is because... <laughs> you know, most of our work, especially if you're on county commissions, most of our work is in the morning, you know, before six o'clock and after seven, right? Um, especially if you have full-time jobs. And I have a, I have a kid uh, who's the light of my life. And what I want to do is help other women get elected. And if I don't run, I want to line someone up right after me um, to take on four to eight years to continue this legacy of, of creating more opportunities for transportation justice. I don't know. You know, I, I know actually what it takes. I ran not like most people um, in one city or one county. I ran in three counties in 19 cities and I, I slayed in every city. What that took during my race is working 21 hours a day. I would get like two hours of sleep, you know, and I think it's difficult. And, you know, every day I am answering about two hours of email every morning, trying to make sure that I am responding to the needs of our constituents in, in all of the cities that I belong to, we have the staff. And I'm like, wow, this is actually hard. This is why the BART board is mostly or has been a majority majority white retired men, right? <laughs> but this is how right. power is consolidated, right? It's typically not us, right? And so um, we'll see. We'll see if, if I continue to do it. I love it. There's nothing more amazing than, you know, bringing the voices of all of our folks to that dais, you know, every two weeks and being able to press the yes or no button uh, on issues that are really important. You said you had, what was it, five things you wanted to accomplish? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. Where, what are those five things and where are you in the process? Yeah, so number one was to try to create some equitable fare structures, right? BART is 
an extremely expensive system. And I didn't understand why before I got elected, but now I understand why. 70% of the fare box, meaning what you pay, goes to fund the system. That's a different algorithm than New York or Atlanta or Chicago. It's how the, the BART system was actually created. It's not heavily funded by the state. It's funded by the writers. And so every year, every two years, there's a slight fare increase. It's extremely expensive. For young people, um, up until last year, just last year, BART is almost 45 years old. Up until last year, if you were 11 and a half, 12, you were paying full fare for BART for whatever reason. And we all bury kids know those remember them red tickets. We took away them red tickets this year because guess what? If you're now 18 and under, you get to pay that, that youth fare. I'm so proud of that work. Nice. Um, that's a drastic change in BART policy, drastic. The second thing that I was able to, you know, like be a part of is, um, keeping even during a deficit time keeping uh the i wanted to make sure that we uh lifted up disabled folks and elderly folks and while there was a, a potential that we were going to decrease that discount we elevated that discounts for disabled and elderly people we were able to keep that so that's fair equity the second thing that i really wanted to do was put was to, to really try to reshape uh, basically our police commission, right? Um, and you might not know, but one of uh, New America Media Pacific, uh, uh, Pacific News Service and Youth Outlook, one of your veterans, Kriya Gomez, is now on our police commission. I saw happy, that, yes. Very happy that. about that. And a year before, I had a, a young Black man who I put on um, for a year who really, you know, kind of, I think, pushed us ahead. And this is in the midst of, you know, our police department really dealing with, with a number of challenges, including um, the the shooting, uh, the police involved shooting of Shelly and Tyndall. We um, have an opportunity at BART with our own police department is is to push forward some of the, the, the nation's most progressive policy around training um, and also accountability. And I think it's going to take a while. So that's two of, of, of getting off the, the there was a, a woman in that position that I didn't feel like deeply represented what I wanted uh, to be represented from my constituency. So replacing her with people in the community, one was Amon and now it's Priya Gomez. So again, moving police accountability. Three, um, I don't think that, and again, the three things is, is what I'm about to be working on these last two years. I had to get my footing is um, adding more police officers uh, to our force is going to make the uh, system safer. I actually do think that the BART, uh, our agency, can adopt a similar program that San Francisco implemented over 15 years ago called MTAP. Um, and the acronym is less important than what they do. It's people from the community who um, are uniformed but not sworn and not carrying guns mm -hmm. to, to be the eyes and ears of a system. And they're actually hired from community and they're training conflict resolution. And, and, they, and, and just being there serve as a deterrent for folks acting fool, but also like a caring eye. If there is a homeless old man at the end of the line and he's sleeping, the last thing he needs to see is somebody with a gun waking him up. He needs to see, I believe, someone who looks like his, his niece or his nephew saying, Uncle, are you all right? Um, there will mm -hmm. always be, I believe, transit police in our system. I don't think I'm going to get rid of them. But what I think is important is also to have um, 
uh, again, eyes and ears that are not sworn before I leave and it's already in the works. And I'm excited about that. There's hurdles that we have to get through, like unionization issues and seed funding. So that's, that's three. Um, you know, my overall goal is to make BART free for youth. Um, and I plan on using the next two years you know, in um, my tenure to make that happen. And I know that most of that re pilot resource is going to have to come from the private sector because we don't, now that I deeply understand the budget, there's no new money that's coming in, right? So yeah. to make, make and like really understanding the budget line item for line item, like there's no new money coming in. There's no way I'm going to get that outside of raising tens of millions of dollars to pilot that project and to see with that how we re reduce chronic absence right now that we have a regional system. We have kids who go to Oakland Tech, but who live in Pittsburgh, right? They want to finish their time out at Oakland Tech or, or at Washington High School. Um, yeah. But because of gentrification and because of sort of this mass exodus of poor people from our cities, um, it's been difficult for young people, even with these discounts, to be able to to kind of like live out their childhood in their city of, their city of birth or city of origin. Um, and then lastly, you know, for me, I think that, um, you know, answering this issue of transit equity around fare and safety, you know, I really want um, our folks to get jobs, right? I really want folks yeah. to get jobs. So it's being able to expand. We have 3,000 employees that work for BART. And it's some of the last good, the last good jobs, you know, civil service jobs in our region. And I think we can answer some of these safety questions. This last year program with Baby Hunters Point Foundation, where we have men and women from the community housing our elevators at Civic Center and Powell Street. And there are folks and those elevators used to be really, really yucky. And, mm. we, have, and we have um, really, really awful and very similar to our ambassador program. You know, what we found in this pilot of having folks staffed in those elevators, that that's like a 99% success rate of them not only not being soiled, but old people, disabled people, women with strollers, um, able to actually use mechanisms to get them to and fro in our system. So I actually want to expand opportunities yeah. for folks to get into, um, into BART jobs, which actually are some of the last jobs that pay um, pretty well and that have pensions. So that, you know, those, those are big things, but I actually think that it's being an elected, you actually get to advance agendas. And that's all I wanted to, I didn't want to, I don't want to have power, like personally, I want our community to have power. So yeah. if I can get those things done and pass on the, the knowledge to the next person who's going to come behind me and my beautiful district, that's what I want to do. I think this is really informative in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's good timing for me personally. And I think for our listeners to hear this now, um, because we hear a lot of, we're, we're hearing from you a lot of what comes next, right? Like there, there's a lot to celebrate in the midterm elections. I think a lot of firsts, we talked about this at the, at the top of the show, uh, the kind of faces, the kind of people who are coming in to these roles. Um, but you know, that's next. It's like, you know, the work starts, you know, we have to be mindful, uh, of whoever it is that we put in office, um, being able to enact that are supportive of yeah. their respective communities and like the work starts, right? Like you're not going to sleep if you're doing a good job. You know oh, what no. I mean? Those, no, no, those no, are the no. sacrifices. You're not going to sleep. You're not going to, like I cook all of my food for the week on Sunday. I have to get hella daycare, you know, like I'm home at yeah. 8.30 every night. You know, we do a dance party, me and my kids, and we go to sleep and then I'm up, you know, at four. Like yeah. if 
you're not from massive resources and you have children or you're like, it is like public services. That's why they call it that. I'm like, this is a service. Folks, you know, email me and they're like, for your salary. I'm like, do you do I get like a stipend. I don't even get like, you don't get 2000 bucks a month for doing what I'm doing. Like I could take home like $1,100 a month. Like, you know, it's it's Saturday and Sunday. And so it's a service. It's a love for the people. It's also the people then have a huge expectation of you. If you want to serve, if you want to run for office, you really like, and you live. It's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no. It's a lot of action. You have to be available for folks all the time because they put you in office, right? They are your boss. It's not just a pressure, it's doing. So what now frustrates me even more now that I'm elected and I'm I'm like, oh my God, how do I train and talk to people about like actually policy, the policy making process? It's one thing to have politics, but then how do you make them actionable in an institutional setting, right? It's so much different. I thought I was going to be able to come in there and just rip shit up. It's so like, oh my God. Um, and so I want more of our people to actually put themselves on the line and take power and position and run for office and then be able to say, I'm done, I'm cool. But I think it's, we just talk shit. And like, you can do that from the periphery or you could have the power to push a button and, and start or start a project or you know rally for real resources. Um, yeah. So I think I'm gonna, when I do leave office, it's gonna make me a better zealot about how, um, you know, like what it takes. Yeah. I mean, my, my budget is bigger than the budget for Oakland, the city of Oakland. It's a 3.3 billion, you know, like it's a multi-billion dollar budget with operational and, um, and capital. And it's, I'm a different person in terms of what I think, what I know and what I thought I knew before I got in office. Yeah. Well said. Uh, thanks for making time to come on today for a lot of reasons. I think this is very, informative, uh, especially in the context of our conversation, talking to Tom about considering uh, a write-in campaign for his uh, mayoral bid in Pleasanton uh, and all of the new faces uh, that we saw, you know, people who are coming into the fold now and and becoming more politically engaged, you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years. So this is very informative. We always, I mean, I love hearing your voice. It's great to have you on the show. And I think you're able to explain things in a way that is very helpful, especially when we're having political conversations because you're doing the work. You know, it's not about, you're not campaigning anymore. You know what I mean? Like you're working uh, and it's important for people to hear what that work looks like. Obviously there was a lot to unpack tonight, much to discuss. We could have gone on for hours, but uh, I think we did a pretty good job summarizing our topic. Uh, and I want to thank everybody who was here, Mishkan, Amelia, Tom, uh, and especially our special guests, Latifah, Simon, and as always, our producer, Yiming Piancai. Until next time, quest on, everybody. This episode of Quest on Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.